0: Uh, If you have your Bible this morning, you can open up back to the book of James, the New Testament book of James in chapter 5. We have uh, today and next Sunday to complete this book of James uh, in a series that I've entitled, Talk the Talk and Walk the Walk. In other words, what does it mean as a follower of Christ to truly follow him? His grace changes us. What does it look like to walk in obedience and holiness, knowing that we will fail every day and we desperately need his grace to do it, But James has some incredibly hard-hitting, convicting challenges for us, as we have seen. Uh, There has not really been a week in this entire series that I would say was sort of a warm and fuzzy type message. Um, This morning is uh, more of the same. Uh, I will warn you in advance, if this is your first Sunday, um, do not run out the door terrified. But the reality of Scripture is, and I'm very grateful for this, is the Bible talks about hard topics. Um, God does not shy away from difficult things because God's truth is everything that we need for life and godliness, uh, says the scripture. And so the difficult areas of life that we face, whatever they may be, the Bible has the answer. Christ is the solution. And so we will see that again here this morning. Um, The Bible, whether you know it or not, has a lot to say about the topic of injustice and oppression. And that is the topic that James, here in this portion of his letter, wants to address. Uh, This is extremely relevant to many of the obvious discussions and issues within our nation at present. Um, What James is going to remind us right off the bat, that whether it be a big or a small one uh, experience, we live in a world of injustice. Because of sin, we live in a world of injustice. And what James is going to do here for us this morning is teach us, remind us, How, as followers of Christ, we are to respond to injustice, to mistreatment, to persecution, to being hurt, taken advantage of, disrespected. So hear now from God's word. I'm going to read to us James chapter 5. This is verses 1 through 12, and I'll be reading the English Standard Version this morning. Hear the word of God. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. Of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Verse 7 What do we do? Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation." Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's ask for his blessing over his word this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you are a God of perfect mercy and a perfect justice. In all things, Father, we look to you. Our hope is in you and in your kindness and in your mercy. Lord, without you, we have nothing, and with you, we have absolutely everything that we need. And so tune our hearts to you afresh this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen two ways that we must respond to injustice according to James here in chapter five. The first here we see very clearly in verses one through six is this. Forgive me for a lengthier point, but I want to be precise in what we say here this morning. Number one, followers of Jesus should not try to carry out vengeance against the unjust because God has promised to take care of that. Think about what I just said there. This is scary stuff, if you hadn't noticed yet. Um, The question that we should immediately ask ourselves is here in verses 1 through 6, who exactly is James talking about with these indictments, these very serious accusations? And, And to be clear here, this is an accusation by James against certain rich members of their city who are not believers, but who specifically are oppressing, impoverished, physically earthly poor Christians." How do we know? And I ask the question, how do we know? Because as we've seen thus far over the book, the vast majority of the book of James is very intentionally written to Christians. It is written to the church and everything that we have seen to this point is specifically about sins within the church, among us as believers and and James calling us to repentance and to return to God's grace. Here, he very intentionally switches and is speaking to a different audience. And so what I want to point out to you is how we can see that clearly uh, from the text. Notice, first of all, who is addressed right up front in verse 1. It says, you rich. To these rich, there is no command to repent. There is no command to obey or to return to God's word, only a very sobering, dare I say, terrifying promise of God's judgment and justice for them. But then in verse 7, you see in verses 7 through 12, the audience changes when James, now speaking to the victims, is teaching those victims how they should respond to these unjust rich folks. And in that, he suddenly changes who he is addressing, and he returns back to his normal address that he uses constantly throughout the book when he says, "'Brothers.'" He is referring to specifically brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians, Christ followers, the church, and he will say that three times in those final six verses. And there, James will return to instructing Christians how to respond with Christ-like characteristics. He will again use the language of repentance and trusting in God. Now, let me say one other hopefully obvious thing, but perhaps not obvious in our culture, uh, as we saw very clearly in James 1, we see now again here in James 5, this, being rich is not in itself a sin. That is an important thing for us to grasp right off the, bit, the bat here. We understand from James 1 and here in James 5, God is the giver of all good gifts, including wealth, including any sort of riches. People are not inherently evil, because of the amount of wealth that they possess. People are, however, inherently evil because all of us are sinful because way back in the day, a guy named Adam and a woman named Eve listened to Satan, rejected God's kindness and grace, and when Adam and Eve gave in to sin in Genesis chapter 3, the Bible says in many places that we also fell into sin. All of us stand in need of God's grace, and all of us stand before God as sinners. Now here specifically, though, James wants to talk about four very particular sin issues that he perceives within the rich, unbelieving community in his city. And you will see that his focus is on the heart. And we all can listen to these convictions and consider in our own life, in what ways might these be true of our heart? He wants to deal with those who have gained their wealth in an ungodly way. He wants to deal with those who have made wealth the center of their lives rather than making Jesus the center of their lives. And he wants to deal with those who have failed to use their wealth to bless and care for others. So four sins that he walks us through here in verses 2 through 6. The first in verses 2 and 3 is the sin of hoarding. The sin of hoarding he calls out by name. Uh, In the ancient world, there were really three specific types of wealth. You had money by whatever system, you had fine clothing, and you had precious metals. And James identifies all three to say all of it has been corrupted. All of it has spoiled, literally rusted. And the reason that that has happened, the reason that God's judgment is here on the wealthy is because they have hoarded their resources rather than use them for God's redemptive kingdom purposes. This may or may not be something that you can identify with, but what I want to make sure all of us think about as Christians this morning, I've used this metaphor many times, it is not my own, but the reality is is that we as Christians can think of ourselves as sponges. That the overflowing waters of God's grace and mercies pour into us as believers, as new believers and old believers and everything in between, and we are saturated with his grace. And what he has called us to be in this life is a sponge that God in his love and mercy rings out so that those waters of mercy might overflow to others. But what we can tend to do is in a very real way hoard these spiritual, physical gifts of grace that God has given us, and instead we become a soppy, soupy, nasty, wet sponge that is not overflowing out the grace that has been poured into us. Are we in danger of being a spiritual hoarder? James puts it this way, you have wrongly laid up treasure in the last days. That's a particularly powerful statement. It's not one that James came up with on his own either. He got it from his half-brother, Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19-21, through 21, says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be, also. The sin of hoarding, in verse 4, he addresses the sin of fraud. The situation here is that these rich employers, during their harvest season, had hired the poor to come in and do the work of harvesting. And even though after harvest was over, the employer had the money to pay them, for whatever reason, he or she decided not to pay them the wage that they had earned. This is not an uncommon problem, apparently. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, the Bible gives God's people very clear instructions about this. Listen to Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Here, James says that two different things are actually crying out. The riches themselves, he says, are crying out about your injustice, and those workers who have been defrauded, they too are crying out to the Lord. And the most important part here, the punchline is that there is one who hears. There is one who is listening to those cries. Here, the Bible refers to God as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a common description of God in the Old Testament. It means that God is the leader of angel armies who are there to protect, to defend, and to care for God's people. God hears that his children are in trouble and he is not okay with it. If you find yourself struggling Under injustice, or you know someone who is being mistreated, God hears, God sees, God cares, God will rescue, God will indeed bring justice. And that really is the encouragement here. It may not be according to your timing, which can be hard, it may not be according to your particular way that you'd like to see it play out, which can be hard. But what James is teaching us here is that we are not to respond to injustice by becoming violent, vengeful, riotous, rebellious, or revolutionary. Rather, he calls us to face oppression with patient trust and faithfully following him. The next sin he identifies is the sin of indulgence in verse, self-indulgence in verse five. Again, we saw last week, pleasure, seeking pleasure in itself, again, is not sin. All good gifts are from God. But when you make that the most important thing above God and you obsess over finding pleasures of this life and misuse God's good gifts, it becomes wickedness. I do not have to state the obvious, but I will state the obvious that our nation is filled with. We are obsessed with comfort. We are obsessed to the point of idolatry with self indulgence. More me, more comfort, more laziness, more entitlement. And no one is immune from this temptation, whether you be upper class, middle class, lower class. We are all subject to that sinful temptation. Self-indulgence is sin because it is the very opposite of who Christ is. The Son of God did not come to gather together all that he could get from us. Rather, he came to give everything that he had to us. Most of all, giving his life itself to save, to care for, to redeem you. And then finally, James mentions the sin of murder in verse 6. We saw the sin of murder last week referring to Christians themselves, and we took it to be a literal statement, which I do think that it is. I think here, most likely, this is a figurative statement, and the idea here behind the idea of the sin of murder is that by unjustly withholding these impoverished workers' wages, you have functionally destroyed their lives. You have guaranteed that they will continue in poverty, in literal starvation, and it may indeed cost them their lives. But even here, the Bible reminds us that Jesus leads the way in being one who righteous received what he did not deserve, in being one who is perfect, who experienced the greatest of all injustices. What is the greatest of all injustices? The greatest injustice of all time is when the perfect, sinless Savior Jesus, who came to save us, was hung on a cross for sins he did not commit. And in doing so, he made a way for you and I and the world to be saved. James' message here is that the, the unjust should be terrified by the coming day of the Lord. And that those who have experienced the mercy of Christ can look forward to, in hope, the day of the Lord, the coming justice of God. In verse 1, the Bible says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That should sound as terrible as it is meant to sound. Howl, the Greek word behind that, is used in Scripture specifically referring to judgment and means shrieks of terror. James is not just talking here about earthly consequences. I did something bad. I, I, I experienced the consequences in this life. He's talking about eternal consequences. He is telling these people who have not repented of sin that hell is a real place. And that the wealth that you and I so often can rely on is not going to save you in that day. This is a serious reminder about the reality of eternal judgment for all who are outside of Christ and who have never asked Jesus to be their personal lord and savior, and simultaneously a reminder that today like every other day Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He says come in, come to me. There is salvation today in Jesus. Though this is an accusation of the rich and the world without Christ, we should also, as believers, examine our own hearts and ask the difficult questions, in what way am I guilty of hoarding, uh, of fraudulent behavior, of self-indulgence? In what way am I guilty in any way of, quote-unquote, murder or victimizing anyone because of a power advantage that I might possess over them? James' words are convicting. But number two here, James now speaks to his people directly and gives them instruction. Number two, followers of Jesus should respond to injustice with patience and perseverance because God is victorious and just. Because God is victorious and just. We see this in verses 7 through 12. The admonishment is for us to patiently persevere towards this coming day of the Lord. So James is telling those who have been cheated, those who have been persecuted, those who are impoverished, fellow Christians, how they should respond to being a victim of injustice in this world. Now, whether you can identify with the particular ways in which injustice is taking place in this passage or not, the question for all of us is, how do you respond when you are mistreated? How do you respond when someone does something to do to you that they ought not to have done? When someone sins against you in grievous and horrific ways, or maybe in quote-unquote smaller ways, how do you respond? James gives us here three little examples or illustrations that tell us as believers this is how we ought to act. And so the first, he says, is look at the example of the farmer. Look at the example of the farmer. And I'm going to do my best to to describe the example in two words for each of these three examples. So I'm going to give you this phrase, active patience. That the example of the farmer here teaches us as believers to respond in active patience. What do I mean by that? Well, James unpacks for us. He says that the farmer has zero control over when the rains come. He has zero control over those plants coming up out of the ground. That is entirely the work of God, and the farmer has to trust that God is going to do what he has promised to do. And so he says, so you also must have faith in the Lord that he will do what only he can do, in this case, bring justice. I don't think any of us, though, would describe the task of farming as sort of a passive, easy task. Uh, Japheth is now a farmer in Ecuador at times. Is farming an easy thing? No, in no way. Uh, Is farming a profession where you sit around? Very no. Rather, I would describe it to you as active patience. See, the farmer has to maintain his land. He has to plant the seed. He has to pull up the weeds. He has to till the soil and fertilize the soil. And though we as Christians have no control over when Christ returns, we cling to and we believe the promise that he will return in his perfect timing. And until Jesus comes, we are not to hunker down. It's hurricane season, so once a year I get to bring out the phrase and say, Christian, do not live your life hunkered down. Do not check out from the struggles of this world. Do not hide out in your house. We are all called to join in Christ's mission and the mission of of this particular church. The vision, rather, I should say, of this church to see our city made new by the gospel. Jesus is working every single day. He is the great and sovereign and good farmer and he has invited us into his promise. So till the soil in this city or wherever God may send you, be an active part of seeking godly justice and mercy. Do not ever leave out mercy in the city that you are waiting for Christ's return. Then he gives us the example of the Old Testament prophets. My two-word phrase here to describe the Old Testament prophets would be this, speak truth. James tells us to have active patience. Now he tells us to speak truth. One of a multitude of examples that I could give you of the Old Testament prophets uh, is kind of a unique one. In Jeremiah chapter 38, the prophet Jeremiah was pushed into a well by those who were sick of hearing him speak the truth, into an empty well, but a well filled with mud, hoping that he would die. And were it not for God's kindness and sending somebody to pull him out, Jeremiah would have died in that well. Why did they push Jeremiah into the well? Because Jeremiah was faithful to preach the truth of God's word, regardless of what his culture told him was okay. Okay. Did you know that this week, just a couple days ago, uh, in 1536, anyone around for that year? No, okay. In 1536, a guy by the name of William Tyndale did a thing. William Tyndale, this week in 1536, was burned alive at the stake in England. What was his crime? Translating the Bible into English, the language of his people, so that they could read it and hear it themselves. And for his crime, he was burned at the stake. The prophets of the Old Testament suffered specifically because they did what was right and righteous and spoke unpopular truth, even if it denounced the wickedness of the king. They didn't just, though, let me, let me nuance that. They didn't just, quote unquote, speak up or speak out. We have many in our culture that encourage us to speak up and speak out. And I, in general, resonate with what they are saying. But let me give you this caveat. When Jeremiah and the other prophets spoke up and spoke out, the Bible specifically tells us what they said. They did not give their opinion. They spoke the unchanging truth and hope of the word of God. They spoke the truth of God's word. Paul in the New Testament nuances this even more. In Ephesians chapter four and verse 15, he commands God's people to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That is, is as a believer, I want to speak into the sins, the injustices, the reality of this world, and I want to make sure that as they hear the reality of this is sin, that they simultaneously hear that there is one who has come to solve this problem of sin. That in the truth and justice, that there is God's mercy and hope and the promise of new life and that you can come to him today and experience it. We must speak both. Thirdly, we get the example of Job. Get the example of Job. And my two-word phrase I've chosen here is steadfast trust. Active patience, speak truth, steadfast trust. Job shows it to us, if you know anything about the story of Job from the Old Testament, in terrible, unimaginable human suffering, right? We know that God specifically gave Satan permission to attack Job, and that, uh, to summarize a very long story, Job loses all of his wealth. As if that wasn't enough, every single one of his children is killed on the exact same day. And as if that wasn't enough, God gives Satan permission to then strike Job with sores that covered his entire body, and Job's wife's assessment of the situation in Job 2.9, she gives Job this instruction, you should, quote, curse God and die. Thank you for never saying that to me, by the way. But you can understand where she's at, what she's feeling. But Job does not respond that way. He says a variety of things. Uh, in Job chapter one, he says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Job 19, he says this, he puts his steadfast trust in the Lord when he says this, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Job ruthlessly trusted that God would be victorious and that in God's victory, that Job would somehow by God's grace be included in that victory. Job is most likely the earliest written down book of the Old Testament. He is as far, earthly speaking, of from the the moment that that promise is fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross and resurrection three days later, and yet he says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I know that I will see God. So it is with you and I as we wait patiently for Jesus to come back. Again, the justice of the day of the Lord will be for you either a terror or a day of unimaginable joy. For the lost judgment day means horror under the justice and judgment of a holy, righteous God who has the right to judge. But for the found, it is the comforting promise of eternity forever and ever in the face of a good and kind Savior, Jesus, and an end to and a vindication of all suffering, of all injustice for forever. Matthew twenty four thirty six says specifically that only the Father knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. So the question is not, is Jesus coming back? This is not the question. Nor is the question, when specifically is he coming back? Do not waste your time with people who may or may not be Christians, who may or may not claim to be Christians, who will tell you that they know when Jesus is coming back. They don't. Matthew 24, 36 says, Jesus himself doesn't even know. Only the father knows. The question is, are you ready? That is the question. Jesus invites you to come to him, knowing that peace and joy can be found in knowing him and knowing that you will spend eternity in a very real place called heaven. See, the gospel message in its simplest form is this, is there is one who has all power. There is one who has all riches and has wielded them in perfect justice. We did not deserve or earn anything from him. We have nothing to offer him. But he willingly came down to earth, took on human flesh, Jesus, fully God, fully man, and offered up everything that he had for us. And it will cost you absolutely nothing. And he will give you absolutely everything. He didn't just give of his wealth, his riches, his time. He gave himself. He willingly went to a cross to die on the cross for my sins and your sins. He committed no sins. He didn't deserve to be there. I deserve to be there. And in so doing, he makes a way for you and I to be saved. Jesus came for unjust oppressors. The reality is, is it in little ways and maybe even in big ways that I am guilty of the things that I see described here, the sins described. None of us can stand before God and say, I don't deserve your punishment or I deserve your grace and mercy. But there is also no sin that you can commit that God cannot forgive the worst of oppressors, the worst of unjust people, if they will bow the knee to King Jesus and say, Father, forgive me, his answer will be yes. Yes and amen. Alistair Begg famously preached a sermon entitled, The Man on the Middle Cross Said I Can Come. That even as those two sinners who had committed crimes, hung on crosses that they deserved, that Jesus hung on the middle cross and did not deserve to die, but he has made a way so that you can come. Listen to the last several verses of the entire Bible. At the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 17, and again in verse 20, it says this. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen, come Lord Jesus. James ends by telling his followers to establish your heart. Establish, lock in, brothers and sisters, your heart in the promise that Jesus is coming back and he will take care of it. Respond to injustice with patience and perseverance because God is victorious and just. So when you are attacked for believing the truth of God's word, when you are attacked for standing up for the sanctity of human life, when you are attacked for sharing the good news of the gospel, when you are attacked for believing that sin is real and that Jesus Christ is real, Remember the lyrics to my new favorite song this week by Shane and Shane, the title of which is, You've Already Won. They sing this, I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle that you've already won. In the bridge, they sing this several times I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. I know how the story ends. I will be with you again. Do you know the story that you are a part of? Creation, the fall, redemption in the cross of Jesus Christ, and waiting for the final restoration. I know whose I am in Christ, and I know where I fall in his story. And what I know most of all is that Jesus has already won. He's already won. He already went to the cross for your sins. He already satisfied the justice of a holy God. He already conquered sin, Satan, and death, and we are just waiting for him to come back to do his final victory lap and take his people home. Come, Lord Jesus. The Bible says this in closing, Romans chapter 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 38, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together.